host, Katie Davey, and today I'm the one being interviewed. We just celebrated our sixth full month of this project, so I wanted to take the opportunity to flip the script a bit. We asked you on social media what questions you'd like me to answer, and then I asked my lovely partner, Paul, if he would take these questions, as well as some of his own, and interview me. We chat about a wide range of topics, um, including our current TV and book recommendations, so stick around to the end to hear that. Um, This is also the first episode since we launched our t-shirt campaign. If you haven't had a chance, head over to femwonk.com slash buy and check out our A Woman's Places in the House t-shirt. This is our way of positively contributing to the dialogue leading up to the 2019 federal election. We want to see a House of Commons that is more representative of the actual population of Canada. This is also something that we've heard time and time again from guests on our podcast, so this won't be a surprise to you. We do know, though, that a t-shirt campaign isn't necessarily going to change the hearts and minds of our fellow Canadians, which is why we'll also be donating a portion of our sales to Equal Voice Canada. So head on over and show your support. All right, into the interview. So very special guest today, um, Paul, my partner, is going to be interviewing me, which is a bit of a different flavor for the episode. Uh, Really thankful that he's agreed to do this. Uh, My mindset was kind of, who's the person that knows me the best and can kind of really get into a deep conversation with me about some of the things that listeners are interested in knowing a bit more about. So with that, I will pass it over to Paul to get him to start the questions. Uh, thanks so much, Katie. I have to say I'm a bit nervous, but I uh, I think talking about you is going to be pretty easy or having well, a conversation is, with you. Is that any different talking about me than what we normally do? Fair enough. Yeah, we have years of practice. Um. Okay, so should we just kick things off then? Totally. Okay, so I think I think the question I want to kick off with um, is in the last year, a lot of things have happened um, to you, but also, you know, happened to us. Uh, one of the big ones was we worked on Brian Gallant's uh, re-election campaign. Um, and, you know, I had the opportunity to go out to New Brunswick and do that with you. Uh, we obviously didn't get the outcome we wanted, um, and that was that was tough. For both of us, I think for you a bit a bit harder. Um, but since then, not only have you started Femwonk, um, but you were you became an Action Canada fellow. Uh, you joined the youth working group on gender equality. Uh, you got to go to Vancouver and attend a Women uh, Deliver conference, and you became a coach uh, for women, the Women's on Boards organization. Um, and I, I, you know, I I sort of felt happy to have sort of a front row seat to see you take on all those activities. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how after the loss during the election campaign, how you said, here's what 2019 is going to be about for me? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. And I think one that is probably on the minds of a lot of folks right now as well, um, leading up to the federal election. And I think actually this was something that lots of folks across the country were grappling with because we've seen um, interesting changes in governments across the country. Um, For me, honestly, I so I started Femwonk in November 
and the election happened at the end of September. And then, of course, there was the, the six-week period of who's going to form government, uh, the hung parliament stuff, which was fun and interesting within its own right. But for me, honestly, I was really feeling, even before the election, that um, I was ready to kind of stretch my wings a bit more and to be taking on more um, more indifferent roles and responsibilities in my own life and perhaps had things had gone the right way, if the way I wanted them to, is a better way of putting it, um, just taking on different roles within the government of New Brunswick as well. So, so I think those things were already in motion for me. I was already thinking about um, how I wanted to kind of start the next phase in my life and why I really wanted to spread my wings a little bit more. Um, so that's really why I kind of started Femlock. But by doing that, it did give me a bit more kind of confidence, actually, to just honestly, like, apply for things. Um, because again, you know, you mentioned my master's, um, Action Canada, the Girls on Boards program, like everything you mentioned, um, it was by and large applicant based. And so I just honestly took the mindset of I'm just going to apply. And worst thing that happens is, you know, somebody says no, but without applying, I'm the one saying no already. So that was kind of a mindset I was in. And really, it's been a phenomenal experience. I've, I really feel like I have been stretching my wings, getting more confident, learning things that I didn't even know I didn't know, <laughs> um, and even just getting to explore different parts of the country, which has been so transformational for me. Um, you know, you mentioned going to Vancouver and being from New Brunswick. Uh, it's pretty darn expensive to get out to Vancouver, so it's not really an opportunity I had had. And so to really just experience um, in the actual space some of the real challenges that exist in Vancouver right now, um, whether it's homelessness, whether it's addiction, whether it's you know housing prices, I guess we experience that to a lesser extent there. Um, and hearing how folks are dealing with that firsthand um, really gives me both perspective um, and just a different understanding than just being, you know, talking about the numbers from, you know, some other place. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that exactly answers what you were trying to get at, but basically, um, I guess my, my advice maybe is, um, you know, bet on yourself and apply for things. If you don't, you're the person saying no, it's not the other person or the person kind of on the other side of the application. Um, and I actually think that that's worse, like you not taking a chance on yourself. Um, and then, yeah, like, just be willing to fail because when you're willing to fail, you actually, I think, grow more um, and you get out of your comfort zone. So that really, that's what I've learned, I guess, in the last kind of six months to a year. And yeah, I don't know. We're on a journey, so we'll see. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, no, I think that's great. And um, uh, I guess for the audience, uh, we, Katie and I had the opportunity to go up to Vancouver uh, together, which meant a lot to me because I had spent about five years there since before um, moving to Ottawa, and um, it's probably one of my favorite places. Um, although, you know, we met out in Nova Scotia, uh, so I've, I've also got a special, uh, special place in my heart for Atlantic Canada as well. Um, so when I, when I was 26 years old, I was actually, I'd, I'd moved out to Vancouver for the first time and I was cooking professionally and I was actually working in a bit of a, a sort of trendy food cart food cart scene had just started out and that's when I decided to take sort of my plunge into politics um, and I know that now you're coaching sort of young young Canadians um, what advice would 
I think you've already sort of said it a bit, but but what when you're when you're talking to the the mentors or the, the people you work with, what sort of specific advice or questions are you getting from them? Hmm. So yeah, I think what I just mentioned before are really key aspects to that. Um, you know, talking to a young person about betting on themselves is something I think that's really empowering, um, and a lesson that sometimes we often learn a bit too late in life. Um, so that's a big one. I talk about betting on yourself. Um, but I also talk a lot about um, knowing what you don't know and meeting people where they are. Uh, a lot of folks that I do work with um, are progressively minded. Um, and of course, right now we're seeing, whether it's here in Canada or in our neighbors to the U.S., uh, we are seeing a rise in divisive uh, debates and conversations. So I often like to talk to folks about meeting people where they are and not not necessarily just expecting that everybody knows what you know or not necessarily expecting um, or not necessarily requiring, I guess, the folks that you're trying to engage with um, be where you're at because I, I like to call uh, feminism a journey and I think that there are lots of folks that are maybe just starting their feminist journey or a lot of folks that we have to help get there. And I think that's okay, but um, yeah, my biggest piece of advice that I that I give to folks is, you know, know what you don't know and meet people where they are and just be open and inclusive and have a dialogue um, rather than a debate. So yeah, that's that's kind of my new thing right now is dialogue rather than debate. Which... I, I could I can tell you from firsthand experience <laughs> that sometimes that's a struggle in the household, but I'm working we're, on we're it. We're getting yeah, we're getting there. Um. Okay, so we've talked. We're talking sort of about the president decisions that you're making right now, and some of the people you're working with are making. Maybe let's look back first. What are the things that happened in the last ten years, sort of in the world or or to yourself, that have inspired you the most? That have you have got you fired up? Mm, interesting. Um, I really do think that. I, I think my life would perhaps be very different had I not tuned into the kind of political world when I did. So I say that, um, I guess, with the background. So when I was in, even in high school, I was not talking about politics with my peers. I was not even really talking about the news or current affairs. Uh, I did talk a bit about those things with my, uh, with my parents, my father particularly, um, but it was more at a localized level. Like I was very kind of inquisitive of, uh, you know, he's a small business owner in St. John's, so very inquisitive um, about kind of the landscape and the, I guess, situation that he was operating in. Uh, but that's really it. I wasn't talking about politics. I wasn't talking about current affairs or news. Um, but then, of course, Barack Obama came to be. Um, and I think that is really when I started tuning in in a big way to politics because I honestly like that was very much the message that um, Barack Obama was sending was very much a message that I had identified with like I was that type of person that wanted to identify with hope and change and was it hope and change was that the <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what the, hope was definitely a problem. right so um so yeah so then I, I started getting curious and I was kind of like okay I like this is interesting, this is important, what's, what's happening here? Um, and then honestly, um, when I went to university, I actually started by studying kinesiology because I had grown up playing sports my entire life, 
Um, and, and that was all I really knew. I honestly had no idea that I could do, for example, a degree in political science, which I ended up doing. Um, so my goal, I was going to be, uh, you know, I was going to be a physiotherapist or a chiropractor and I was going to help folks get back to the sport they loved. That was my goal when I was, you know, 17 or 18. Fast forward to, again, graduating with a degree in political science. It's quite a jump. Um, but fear not, folks. I have hilarious electives um, in my from my degree. So motor control, biomechanics. If you want to have that conversation, you just let me know. I will let everybody know <laughs> that Katie does lead our exercise routines. Um, yeah, so, yes, so she's still got it. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, so I think like the reality was I was not tuned in to the dialogue at all. And so um, to be tuned in first by Barack Obama and then um, really when I was in university to start seeing leaders like uh, like Brian Gallant, who you've of course mentioned, um, which to me he was he was everything that I wanted in a leader as, you know, a university student. Like I wanted a young, charismatic, progressive person to be leading the province that I loved. And so, um, you know, I started kind of picking up that dialogue. Of course, Justin Trudeau is coming to the scene at the same time. And so I really think, like, honestly, had those three leaders not been leading at the time they were during my formative years, I honestly don't know that I would have engaged in politics in the same way that I have. Um, it's funny It's yeah. funny that you say that because I'm, uh, you know, I'm a bit older. And um, when I started university, I believe, uh, Paul Martin might have been prime minister, but George Bush was definitely president. And I definitely, you know, I was in grade eight when the, the uh, Twin Towers fell and then everything that came after that. And we didn't have that many hopeful figures mm-hmm. on on the stage. And um, when Barack Obama won, I you know I I was I was I was in I think I was in fourth year university. I remember going down to Lake Ontario and looking sort of across at the states and saying, "Wow, like they did it. This is this is gonna happen." Um, so it's funny. It's funny that you say that. I guess. I guess my other question then, if that's what inspired you, what in the last ten years would have been the biggest letdowns that? Um... Mm, yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting question, um, and it's hard. It, it really it's hard to like pinpoint for me what that looks like. Um, the one that is of course most memorable to me is um, the Hillary Clinton loss. Um, I, you know, had my lovely t-shirt, Hillary for president that I wore everywhere. Um, and that again, like it gave me so much hope, you know, tuning into politics when I did, it was shocking to me to learn how few women, well, in the case of the United States, no woman has ever served as president still in Canada, of course, Kim Campbell. Um, but when we look at the broader landscape, so few women actually serving in positions of leadership, um, it's not something I honestly had any idea about until I got tuned in and, and realized just how disproportionate that representation was. So um, I think because of that, the, the Clinton loss was really hard for me. Um, but as uh, I go back to sports, I did competitive cheerleading uh, for my whole life. And one of my 
coaches used to always say a setback is a setup for a comeback. <laughs> so when I think about, again, the Clinton loss um, and compare it to what's going on right now in the Democratic primaries, um, I think it's so amazing that you look. So, yeah, there's what, 20 plus candidates, um, but they are the most diverse set of candidates ever to run for a nomination for a political or for like the Republicans or Democrats in the states. Um, not only are there, you know, multiple women from all different backgrounds running, um, but you also have, you know, a diverse set of other folks running as well. So, um, so although that was a big letdown for me, I look at what's happening right now with the Democratic primary, and I honestly don't think we would have the same slate of candidates running had Hillary Clinton not run for president and won the popular vote, right? Um, just, you know, three years ago. I don't think that we would have the same slate of candidates um, as we do right now. So, mm. yes, it was a letdown, but I'm hopeful. Um, and, and I think that's broadly the case. Like, yeah, we're seeing terrible things happen across the world right now when it comes to democracies and politics and alt-right parties kind of leading the charge. But I think that galvanizes folks against a cause. And again, the U.S. is such an easy example, but, um, you know, you see amazing folks like AOC and others who have come up in really protest to that alt-right movement. So, yeah, letdowns, but setback is a setup for a comeback. <laughs> Love it. And, and as an aside, I'll say the first time I, or one of the first times I came out to New Brunswick and we went to one of uh, to to a party with a lot of your your colleagues, um, the your boss at the time uh, put a YouTube video of uh, Julia Gillard on the TV. <laughs> yeah. Turned off the music. It was just speech by Julia Gillard, the former prime minister of Australia. Um, the and only woman to serve in that role. Yeah. The only woman to serve on that role, and you actually got to meet her in yes. Vancouver. Can you speak a little bit about why she inspires you so much? Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, my, any of my colleagues that are listening will be like, what gathering was that? That happened at every single one. <laughs> yes. So Julia Gillard, I got to meet her at Women Deliver in Vancouver. Um, it was a hilarious interaction. I was so tongue tied. I don't even know. I don't think I even introduced myself. I just was like, hello. Thank you so much for being here. Photo, autograph, please smile. Like, it was so bad. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, so for anybody who hasn't had the opportunity, if you go and search on YouTube right now, like, Julia Gillard, I was offended. Um, you'll see the speech that she gives in the Australian Parliament when the leader of the opposition basically says something incredibly sexist to her. Um, or calls out, like, he says, like, oh, I was offended by the prime minister when she did so-and-so, or did whatever. Um, and then she goes on this big speech that's amazing when she's like, I was offended when the member opposite said this, and I was offended when the member opposite did this, and just outlines all of these incredibly sexist things that she's had to endure as, uh, as the prime minister. And it's just, like, such a powerful thing to watch her call out the blatant sexism that she was facing in that role and so I just think that that's so powerful and honestly like the reality is a lot of women in power don't necessarily um don't necessarily take that same approach and I think it is because we still live in a system where 
it is so hard for women to get to the top role that when they're there, um, it's very hard for them to actually like embrace their womanhood, but rather embrace the role that this has always looked like. I don't know if that makes sense, but basically, you know, like embrace kind of the stereotypically masculine traits that have led to getting to that position. So I, yeah, it's an amazing speech. It's so great. Um, And then unfortunately she did lose the following election, but she's now doing amazing things on global education and yes. And I think what's so great, you know, with with figures like like President Obama and, and Julia Gillard, but also... Uh, you know yourself. I think. Uh, I think. I've, it's okay if I, I plug you, but the probably the <laughs> listeners to this podcast is that, you know, there are these injustices, and it's so good to see when people just take draw a line in the sand and are like, we are not going to tolerate this anymore. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it doesn't always work, but it does. Those people have certainly changed my perspective, and I think I'm I'm hearing that they've changed your perspective, yeah. and we we can take that torch and we can, or that the baton and, and get it a little bit further down the field. Mm-hmm. And I um, do really think again, in the opposition to the alt-right parties coming to power again, the U S is just such a prime example. But, um, for me, I cannot tell you how much seeing a politician like AOC in that position and calling out injustices in power at every single turn in a in such an authentic way in such a real way like i cannot tell you what impact that has had on me on really understanding the types of folks that i want to represent me like i don't want people that you know just look at the polling and do what they think people want i'm sure maybe there is some of that of course but like i want authentic politicians that are willing to call out power and call out injustices and not just play the game um but but honestly so much it was it's been so much easier to realize that when we've seen folks like AOC and others do it in a way um that is working right it's not like oh sorry she's just you know yelling and screaming I mean she gets a lot of that but it's just so empowering to see leaders like that I think just so everybody knows, it's a beautiful day in Ottawa right now, <laughs> and we finished our our deck. Um, our landlord was renovating it, and we just got some really nice lawn furniture. So both of us are feel, feeling very hopeful. So let's assume we we get more people like AOC and Julia Gillard, um, and and people of this. Well, I guess AOC is of our, of the, our, yeah, generation, of our generation, which is great. Totally, um, they keep standing up. Um, let's let's look at down the field let's look at 24 years in the future you'll be 50 at that time um what (laughs) let's assume that we have made some progress um what do you think the issues we'll be talking about then that really aren't coming out out now you know yesterday we were having a party and we were sort of talking about uh looking at you know when we feel like we were having a soiree you keep mentioning party people are going to get an the wrong idea of yeah, how we spend our time. Very, very nice for it. But but we were talking about some of the, the issues our families mm-hmm. uh, encountered with, you know, some yeah, members of the family yeah. yeah, who came out or uh, who who decided that they're they're not, you know, they want to identify as a gender other than the one they were born into and, and the struggles faced there. And it was messy, but 
It was that, those those that were all, was a, that those was a were, dialogue. Those yeah. were actually hopeful conversations, yeah. I think. Um, so let's let's assume what what are our kids? But well, I mean that's it's oh a bigger company. <laughs> uh, but what are our kids going to be looking at us and saying? Why is the world this way? Like, what are they thinking? We got to change it. Yeah, that's so interesting because I do I do think, and as I was mentioning earlier, like the meeting folks where they are. Uh, I do think it is so important to understand folks' context, right? And not just say, you know, this person is wrong because, but rather say, you know, this person um, through, in many cases, no fault of their own, has grown up in this type of community with this type of people, with this type of education system and, and all of those things, right? So, um, so I think it will be really interesting to understand where we rank on that spectrum based on the progress that happens over the next 24 years. Well, that doesn't, doesn't really make sense, as I said it out loud. But um, I, I think, honestly, one of the biggest things that I wish that we wouldn't be talking about in 25 years, but I do think we will still be, is figuring out how to build a new economy and an economy that is not entirely based on capitalism in a way of if you don't, if there is no actual dollar economic value, we don't measure what you're doing. So the reason I bring that up, um, you know, when we talk about caregiving work broadly, there is so much unpaid caregiving work that particularly women, not always, but women bear the brunt of um, whether that's, you know, just performing the caregiving at home with with kids or with, um, you know, their parents even just you know managing the household overall we do know that women still tend to be the folks that do that um but also just childcare providers like the folks that are providing child care for the under five category are grossly underpaid um and and even you know teachers are not always the most uh, highly paid in our society um and but then again like as we know in canada particularly our population is getting older i don't see that I don't see that trend curbing anytime soon. Um, and so I think reimagining how our economy works in a way that actually values the unpaid work that people are doing right now. Um, that make the make the household and the make well, that, the world that so make much the better. Community right? Work, right? Like if if women just stopped doing all that unpaid work, like <laughs> Our, our communities would literally crumble, right? Because again, like these are the women that are on the not-for-profit boards as well. They're on like the school boards, the community-based organizations. In addition, again, to um, in you know highest numbers in in most of history that are that are working. In addition to providing all of these um, caregiving roles as well, or or they're not. But again, we need to value the work that they're doing. To provide the grease that and, keeps the society moving, right? And I think you were telling a story about your your mom taking mm-hmm. taking care of your grandfather, yeah, before before he passed away. No, absolutely. So yeah, my you know my family was lucky enough that when my grandfather was sick, he was able to stay at our house, and my mom was able um, to provide care to him as as he led towards the end of his life. Um, but had she not been available to do that, um, he would have been probably in a hospital bed, probably, because again, like honestly, he was only in, like, I would say, terminal condition for less than a year. 
Um, so he probably wouldn't have even made it to a nursing home. So he would have been taking up space in a hospital bed when he didn't need to be there. He needed, you know, hospice-style care. Um, and my mother was able to provide that in our home. And that costs a heck of a lot less to society than, you know, taking up a hospital bed in the hospital. That's expensive. Mm-hmm. So, but again, we have no way of recognizing that work. Um, and it's not just the actual time and hours and work that my mother did uh, take to do that. But again, the, the cost avoidance from not having him... Um, not having him actually take up the space in in the hospital or the care sector. So, yeah, I think we need to figure out how to recognize that better. As you're telling that story, I also, uh, I remember when we went to go see the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, (laughs) um, one of the cases... No, that wasn't the documentary. That was the actual movie. The movie, um, the drama. But one of the cases was... um, that she used to get gender rights to be sort of sort of fundamental rights was um, was a man, probably like a 40, 50 year old man who took care of his mother as she was passing away. And he was ineligible for a tax credit that mm-hmm. the U.S. had. And yeah, um, like the caregiver credit or something. And, and Ruth. Ruth Bader Ginsburg not only won the won the case, but but a big part of the story was just getting the case to happen, mm-hmm. and she was relentless in that, and and that shows. I, I think that shows you that these sort of issues, um, they're certainly systematic, but they're not, you know, they're not so big that they can't be conquered if somebody totally. or, or a group of people say we want to tackle. Well, this. and I think that raises also such a great point. Like, I think there are two major issues kind of within like issues is not the right word but in the feminist movement um what we don't talk about enough is the way that because again feminism is literally just equality for all that is the definition um and but we don't talk enough about the fact that you know male suicide rates are incredibly high right now we don't talk about the um kind of interesting interesting, I guess that's not the right word, the kind of terrible um, exodus of young men out of the kind of um, labor sector based on, you know, the kind of oil and gas jobs, mining jobs, things like that, without being able to reintegrate back into the workforce due to lower or underskilled um, education, like things like that, we don't talk, or even the over-incarceration of of men. Um, So I think we need to do a better job at identifying the statistics, a better job at identifying the statistics on the other end as well and saying that feminism is, again, it's not about ensuring that women only have equal opportunities, but ensuring that no person based on their gender is discriminated against based on systematic barriers. So I think that that is such an important piece. But again, I think that means we also have to do a better job at engaging men in the dialogue. There's so many times where I go to a, you know, a conference on women's equality or, or what have you, and everybody, every person on every panel says, we need to engage men in this dialogue. And you look around the room, there's not a single man in the room. Like, mm. we need to do a better job at, at, in like, with our own movement being more inclusive. So, yes. So, in, <laughs> yeah, in the vein of doing well, a better job. But sorry. a great example, Paul, is remember for Women Deliver, I remember you asking me, being like, oh, men are allowed to go to that? And I was like, yeah, there are tons of men there. And like, but that's a problem, right? That's a, that's an issue that you know the largest summit, the largest global summit on women's equality, 
the automatic first thing that you thought was that men were not necessarily invited, right? And that, again, is no fault of your own, but that is an issue, and that's, like, the perfect example of us not being inclusive in our movement. I'm blushing there. I just want everybody to know. I may have asked that, but I feel no, but, bad. No, but that's, like, no, that's a perfect example, right? Um, okay, so I think both of us share this belief that, that, we, that we can do better, um, and... I think we also share a belief that governments, um, provincial, federal, municipal, uh, international sort of bodies, uh, can, can and do play a big role in, in improving lives for, for citizens, for all citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually had the, the opportunity in the New Brunswick election to uh, be a part of the, the main group who drafted the platform for that election. Obviously, we're going into a federal election in October. Um, what are you looking for in the platforms across uh, across the parties? Mm. Uh, what sort of things are you looking for and you're hoping to see? Yeah, so great time to plug. If anyone's listening and need help with their platform submissions, let me know. <laughs> We did, actually did an entire episode on, on platforms. Um, we were joined by a former cabinet minister in New Brunswick who um, has worked on, you know, probably every single platform and every single liberal platform in New Brunswick for the last, you know, 30 plus years. So that was a great episode because it, it really enlightened me as well on kind of what the key elements of like how to develop platforms and like, again, why it's so important to engage your membership, but also your broader community. Um, I think for me, there are three things I'm going to be looking at for the federal platforms. One, what new initiatives um, are coming forward? So one of the things that I've really started to notice, particularly in New Brunswick, is the fact that we haven't reelected a government nearly in my entire lifetime, um, is, is we're not seeing bold initiatives come forward. We're seeing tinkering around the edges because... You know, the government is elected for four years. It takes them a year to figure out how the heck to govern. And then the last year they're spending on how to get reelected. They have basically two years to figure out what they actually want to do and implement. Um, So I'm going to be looking for bold new initiatives, things that will, like you mentioned, make the lives of Canadians better. Um, And also, again, like that provides a roadmap to deal with some of the biggest challenges that we're facing today. Uh, I think there's probably no question that we'll see Pharmacare um, show up in probably three platforms. I would say the Liberal Party um, is on track to to put something in their platform. Of course, the NDP will. Uh, and I assume the Green Party will as well. So that will be interesting to see what that kind of looks like. Um, I'm going to be interested to see what parties are doing as far as talking about income inequality. Um, because I think again like most of the most of the world right now we're seeing the one percent become the you know point zero 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 one percent and the folks that make up the 99 percent are not getting much further ahead um so i'm going to be interested to see what parties are bringing forward to actually address income inequality um and then i'm going to be looking really for and this is not necessarily within the platform per se but i'm going to be looking for how many um how many candidates that each party's running come from a diverse background, um, particularly, of course, how many women each party's running. But again, you know, we can't just continue to talk about getting more women elected. Of course, we need to. 
Um, but I want to see, you know, what the diversity looks like on every single slate, um, while also being cognizant of how parties are using that diversity. I don't want to see a weaponization of the diversity of candidates. Um, so those are the really, I would say, the three things, or I guess the other thing um, I'd be interested to see is how um, youth are, how they're reflected in platforms, because I think, um, I don't know, I think you would maybe agree, Paul, but um, a lot of folks, particularly youth advocacy groups, would say that the reason, one of the main reasons that the Trudeau government was successful in the last election was because youth turned out um, in massive numbers like they'd never have before. Um, so I think it will be interesting to see what parties bring forward in their platforms around um, around youth. I say that broadly because I think like when we talk about women's equality, I think we need to get past talking about, you know, the traditionally women-specific issues. Same with youth. Like, youth are not one-voter issues, one-issue voters, sorry, either. So um, I'll be interested to see, like, how parties capture the youth vote as well. So, actually, just, just because you made that plug at the very start, um, for the listeners who are part of organizations um, or just active citizens, um, how how do you think do you have any advice for them on how to influence what's in a party platform or just what's generally what the the government chooses to prioritize on a day-to-day basis yeah so so i i think like a good advocacy campaign cannot be like overstated it's so important and i think the three key things that folks uh, need to think about when developing those are um, one clarity consistency and simplicity (laughs) like the buzzwords right so what i mean by that is again when we talk about meeting people where they are the reality is every single member of parliament every single party they're getting bombarded by citizens by advocacy groups by you know lobbyists every single day probably multiple times a day we can't just expect them to know what we're talking about when we walk in and say you know pay equity right like they've they've met with a million folks before you already today so I think it's important to not bring forward, you know, a 30 page document with 100 recommendations, but rather say, here are the top three things that are going to move, um, you know, that are going to make progress for our members um, in a way that is accessible and clear so that anybody can pick up this, you know, postcard on the table and know what you're talking about. Um, but again, that gets your message across. So don't assume people know what you're talking about. Make it short simple clear um and then yeah just ensure that you're you're kind of consistently spreading that message over and over and over again on as many platforms as possible in the same way so it kind of breaks through all of that i think that's chaos um okay so the the i think the last question i i want to ask is uh recently we uh we got a deal on a tv which we installed in the bedroom um after after moving in together we quickly realized that having a laptop in the bed to Paul, the state has no business in the bedroom of the nation <laughs> <laughs> um uh but it just it just became un- unmanageable and both of us like to fall asleep watching t- watching uh, a movie or a tv show um, so what are you watching right now? Uh, okay, so this is like, I feel like you can learn a lot from somebody by what their recommended picks are on Netflix. <laughs> um, so I actually just finished watching Designated Survivor. 
um, which the latest season was really interesting to me. Um, the, you know, the first season was a bit of the kind of catastrophe, uh, you know, worst case scenario thing. But this third season was really interesting to me because they did an, a, like a pretty good job at identifying the issues that folks are actually like talking about right now. Um, they did a full episode on child marriage, um, but they did it in a way that wasn't like, oh, let's, you know, let's um, demonize the countries that are doing still supporting child marriage, but rather, um, oh, this is actually something that's happening in the U.S. And here are both sides to the argument, essentially. Um, so that was really interesting. And they've done, they did that in basically every single episode. So every single episode has a bit of a social flavor to it. And you see the parties kind of, uh, party the, the staff or whatever, debate back and forth on those particular issues. But they've also sourced um, real content, real videos from folks like that have them on YouTube or whatever. So they also did an episode on insulin costs. Um, and they show these videos um, in the episode of, you know, this woman talking about how she lost her son because he wasn't able to afford the insulin doses. And that is a real story from a real person. And they kind of make that disclaimer at the end, like none of these videos have been edited. Like this is documentary footage that we've we've taken. So, um, yeah, the last season, I like I really enjoyed. It's kind of similar to what The West Wing used to do, but I think. Um, in a way that, again, is a bit more relevant to what we're seeing day to day. So Designated Survivor would recommend um, my guilty pleasures. <laughs> uh, I love comedy specials, love them. So anytime there's a new one, I like put it on. And I just watched Glitter Room by Catherine Ryan, would highly recommend. She's a Canadian. <laughs> she makes fun of Canada a little bit and Sarnia where she grew up, but I love comedy specials, so would recommend those as well. <laughs> love it. What about um, you? What are your... Well, I should I should let the audience know that we have dramatically different tastes <laughs> in movies and books, which we get through. We Don't, don't worry about us. We've developed a way forward. Um, but I'm definitely, like, all about science fiction. Oh my gosh, yeah. And you things, to do, yeah, things to do with the future, which don't, don't get that much play with with you all the time but um uh so right now i'm watching stranger things three obviously because it just just came out um two things i do want to uh, do want to plug that we haven't actually had the opportunity to watch together uh is the first with um sean uh with sean penn and um natasha mccallhone uh it's a great it's a great amazon series about getting to mars and um, Shocking! I think so it, getting to Mars. How many I, times has Paul talked about? I think it can. Yeah. I think it can really inspire people. And then the book that I just finished reading, which you have said you'd read, uh, is Cal- "Calculating Stars" by um, by Mary Robinette Kowal. And I I really really love this book, and I I, I think you're going to read it, and I can't wait to talk about it with you. But it's about a sort of like an alternate history of NASA and getting to the moon and then eventually getting to Mars. It presumes there's a world catastrophe where climate change is drastically sped up. So we have to get off the planet right away. And because there's so much investment in like space flight and technology, because the volume is so much bigger, there's this, this movement to get, um, to get women to be astronauts because... Like, this is the 50th year of the, the mm-hmm. moon landing. Yeah. 
Um, and it is inspiring, and I, I don't want to take away from that. But if you look at those astronauts who were in those first years, they were they were they all looked pretty similar. And yeah. if you look at and Mission they still Control, do. <laughs> they still do to a large part. And if you look at Mission Control, it was it was almost all white men except all the the people who were really good at math, which were all the women calculators at the time. Mm-hmm. If you've seen Hidden Figures, you know that story. Um, but I thought this book did such a good job at sort of painting a picture of how exploration and, and you know, scientific discovery, when it includes everybody, it's actually way more effective. Yeah, so... Yes, no, it is I on don't, my list. I don't, I don't think we're going to be watching Stranger Things together, <laughs> but I'm hoping we can talk about that book soon. I feel like you're outing me for not watching Stranger Things, and I'm definitely going to get, like, hate mail about this, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, no, the, that book is definitely on my list. Um, I'm currently reading Too Dumb for Democracy, question mark, um, which has been interesting. Like I'm, I'm enjoying it for sure, but I definitely have been on more of a fiction kick. Um, the book I read just right before that was, and it's actually kind of, not really, but kind of similar to what you're talking about was, um, The Huntress by uh, Kate Quinn. Um, it's, uh, Kate Quinn is also the author of The Alice Network, which, um, was a very popular book as well. And The Huntress is basically, or the book um, broadly, is actually about kind of Cold War-ish, um, the Cold War-ish, but one of the main characters actually um, tells the story of being in the first flight group uh, of women in, in the Second World War. And mm-hmm. it was something I actually didn't know, that Russia was the only air force in the world to actually have women... Um, in, in their Air Force in the Second World War, which was, again, a very... As combat pilots. As combat pilots, yeah. So it was um, it was kind of an interesting read. And I'm actually really enjoying... Um, there's There's been quite an uptick recently in, you know, I guess it is historical fiction, but um, still um, in telling the stories about women involved in some of those big life events that we talk about, right? Like, we talk about space exploration, you know, Hidden Figures is a great example um, but really, like, looking at the stories of women, and the Alice Network, again, was the same thing. The Alice Network was a real um, spy network in both World War One and World War Two. so I've been enjoying kind of learning about the, like, women's perspective in some of these big conversations that uh, I don't think we learned about in school, so, yeah, I've been really enjoying that. Um, um, I also love that we're talking about books, because something that was kind of funny, um, at the Women Deliver conference, um, one of the panels I went on, or, sorry, went to, um, talked about the Me Too movement and what that looks like in kind of modern workplaces, and one of the people on the panel was uh, Wade Davis, a former NFL player who actually does basically inclusive advocacy now, um, he identifies the LGBT community, um, and he said that oftentimes, He'll go in and work with, um, you know, men in the corporate space. And the first question he asks them is, name the last three books you read by women about women. And most of the time they just kind of, it's crickets. They're like, uh, I don't know. I can't tell you. And his point to that was basically that, you know, um, it's difficult to move forward on this conversation when men are actually not reading the same content, really, as women are not really reading and understanding the experiences that women are actually facing on the day to day. Uh, and I thought it was kind of, uh, it was interesting and that really resonated with me. And so when I gave Paul a call at the end of the day to kind of have our, our catch up, I said, oh, Paul, like this was something that um, I heard today and it was really interesting. Uh, and I'd love to ask you that question. And actually, Paul 
was able to give those three books and, and you were reading that um, The Space. Sorry, what was the title again? Oh, Calculating yeah. Stars. Yeah. <laughs> Calculating Stars, yeah. So he was reading Calculating Stars at the time, which is by a woman uh, about, again, women's space exploration. And then I think you mentioned um, Educated by Tara Westerberg as well was one you had recently read. Um, and I can't remember. Do you remember the third one? There, there was a third, but... I can't remember the third one. I have a very bad memory yeah. for that. You do, but anyways, so I kind of love that we're talking about books and, and brought that up. So that's my that's my positive Paul plug. He reads books by women about women, so that is great news. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I will say I was really nervous about doing this. One, I'm like pretty self conscious about my voice, uh, and second, yeah, I'm like kind of a private person, and I uh, I didn't know how this would go. Um, but it's been really easy, and we've talked for a long time. Yeah. Um, I think now, as the sun sets, we'll go barbecue some some food and have some dinner, and probably um, probably talk about this stuff some more. So <laughs> definitely. Thank you so much, Katie, for inviting me inviting me to do this. Yeah, and Paul, thank you for asking me some questions. I know we obviously have a bit of this dialogue on a day to day, but I thought it would be kind of an interesting. Um, interesting conversation to capture for listeners so i hope that folks enjoyed this as well and i don't know maybe this is i think will be episode 22 ish so maybe we'll have to have you back around like episode 50 or something to mark another milestone and capture how we did would love to do it all right (laughs) thanks i just want to say again a huge thank you to paul for joining this conversation and doing a great job at interviewing me. Um, As always, if you want to keep up to date with what's going on, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Femlonk. If you love this episode and love the project, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love to have a review from you, so please feel free to leave us one.